Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. I'm Lori Sox. And I'm Sophia Sox. Today we are talking to our friend Dr. Brian Scottco and Sue Levine. They wrote a book for siblings called Fasten Your Seatbelt, a crash course on Down syndrome for brothers and sisters. As a sibling, I have questions that sometimes a parent or my parents can't always answer. So this book really helped me find the answers to those questions and maybe even discover new questions that I didn't think of asking before or maybe I didn't even know that I had. And Brian is always such a special guest. We're so honored to have him here to answer those things that we can't with his friend and co-author, Sue Levine. Brian, Sue, good to see you. How fun is this? Sophia, it's so nice to be able to meet you. And I love the fact I get to do this with my my good pal, Sue. So this will be lots of fun. Nice to meet you all. It's so nice to meet you. Sophia, how old are you? I'm 13. 13. Okay, great. Um, I have a question for you, actually, Sophia. Have you read our book? Yes, I have. Great. And what did you think? I thought it was really great. I mean, there was questions on there that I didn't necessarily think to question or ask, and it kind of answered those, even though I never really had them before. Great. Glad to hear that. Sophia, I'm so excited we're talking today because really you're the expert, right? So this is going to be a conversation all about being a brother and sister um, for all of those who are tuning in. And every experience is unique, but we have a lot of shared experiences. And as you probably know, I have a sister with Down syndrome. So we're part of this siblinghood. And Sue has been doing brothers and sisters workshops for how many years now, Sue? Just forever, for, for really forever. <laughs> so, <laughs> for my whole career. Sue, do you have a sibling? I do not. I'm an only child. So it's kind of interesting that I've spent most of my career working on sibling issues and uh, especially uh, siblings of uh, children with Down syndrome. So um, I'm, a, I'm a social worker, so that's been my career interest. So I'm in it from a professional angle, I suppose, whereas uh, Brian and Sophia have the lived experience of it all. And how did you become interested in working with the Down syndrome community? So it started with the first job I had out of college, actually, and um, really had gotten involved in working with um, uh, individuals with special needs of all ages and all different disabilities. Um, I am a co-founder of a private nonprofit agency in central New Jersey, uh, and we provide early intervention services for children birth to three. Um, doing sibling groups started right at the beginning. We always had more of a family-friendly focus and really wanted to support the entire family. So in addition to parent groups, we also did sibling groups. So, uh, and the sibling groups that I do run regularly in New Jersey are for kids with all uh, siblings with all different disabilities. So Down syndrome and autism seems to be the primary population of uh, people who attend my workshops. So 
Um, so that's kind of what happened. And then Brian and I uh, met through the National Down Syndrome Society, and it was a serendipitous meeting. And uh, we've really just kind of plugged forward now for many, many years, Brian. So um, almost 20 years, I guess, Brian and I have been working together. So yeah, one of the national organizations wanted to do during their conference, a whole session for brothers and sisters. And they said, Brian meets Sue, Sue meet Brian. And it's just been a wonderful professional collaboration and a friendship true that has developed over those 20 years. And we've gotten to do a lot of research together, writing books together and doing brothers and sisters workshops together. So I continue to learn from Sue. <laughs> and vice versa. So, and now from Sophia as well. What is the name of the organization in New Jersey? So it's called Family Resource Associates. Um, and as I said, it's a private nonprofit. And we now also have a lot of adult programs. So we're kind of a lifespan agency, which is wonderful and, and catering to the needs of various kids. So your book is called Fasten Your Seatbelt, A Crash Course on Down Syndrome from Brothers and Sisters. And so, and I had Sophia read it and I read it along with her and First, right off the bat, before we get into the conversation about siblings, I think that this is a really good tool for parents and for parents to give to other relatives. You know, you, you always have people that don't, that have questions and they come to you, which I, you know, it is better for them to come ask you instead of Googling because you never know what people are going to get when they Google. But this is, this has got a lot of information of those initial questions that I know that I had. So I, I found that it was a really good resource for new parents as well as um, just any relative that that has questions about Down syndrome because you go over a lot of the topics. Now, some of the topics do, do you know, hone in on that brother-sister relationship, but it really does um, give a nice insight to what it is to have a sibling or a member of your family with Down syndrome. That's great feedback. We appreciate that. Yeah. Sue and I have always felt knowledge is power, right? And I think sometimes when we're in the family unit, we're expected to somehow be knowledgeable about all things Down syndrome. And we've heard from brothers and sisters that there are still some questions, some fundamental questions about Down syndrome that they're curious about, but somehow along the way, even in the most open of households, they feel like they should have known it already. They should have asked that question already. So we wanted to put some of those questions in the book, but then also it to be a book so the questions really span over the lifespan of having a brother and sister with Down syndrome. And these are all questions Sue and I have gotten from authentic brothers and sisters in our workshops. Uh, we've been lucky enough to do workshops around the country before the pandemic. And Sue, maybe you could describe if you want a little bit about our Q&A session and how those questions came to be. Right. So what we do during the workshops we run is we ask uh, the members of the group to write down on index cards any question they have regarding Down syndrome, any aspect of the sibling experience. And they put it in a shoebox and then we draw questions out during the course of the, um, the session. So the questions really came from real siblings. Just um, Sophia might be particularly interested in the fact that we had two siblings that I had known from the time they brothers were born. Um, and they were, I think, Brian, like 15 and 16 at the time when we had them read our book. And we actually fed them one chapter at a time and really asked them to critique it and provide us with additional 
um, information or making sure it read clearly, but they actually were able to give us more questions to answer for the book and really added a really nice twist to it. So, you know, we really valued um, the input from the siblings as well directly. We really like to say our book is the workshop in a book format. So all the questions that we've received over time, since Sue and I can't travel as much as we have been in the past, we wanted to make sure we at least got those questions and our attempt at the answers written down for posterity. I feel like a lot of this journey as parents and as siblings is that the information isn't there, like it's getting to be there. Thanks to, you know, people like you just putting out more information, more solid, good uh, information. But you're then you have questions, but you are supposed to know. And it's like you're always chasing this this ball and it can make you feel really bad. It can as a parent, it can make you feel like you're failing constantly. And I don't know. But as a sibling, how does that make you feel, Sophia? I feel like when you don't know the answer to some questions, it can kind of feel like you should know or people expect you to know the answer to some questions because I feel like people come up to you and ask you because you know they almost expect you to like not live for your brother but like be in your brother's brain and know exactly what he's thinking when actually you're just trying to like figure out what what it means to that's good. Uh, Sophia, we've heard that from so many brothers and sisters and oftentimes it's when your friends might come over and they just ask that innocent question like, what's up with your brother? Or can you tell me about your brother, right? And you kind of need your quick speech, right? You need your Down syndrome explanation. And we find that as brothers and sisters get older, the amount of details and the sophistication to that very basic, simple question starts to evolve over time. I find that as a parent that you almost want to have like a pre-recorded, a pre a memorized speech of, of what to say in certain situations. And, uh, you know, it's good to be prepared, but it's also good to come from the heart. And I think over the years, you find the, what, what your true response is and that builds over the years. So, But it's a different pressure as a parent. It's a, di it's a different relationship. It's a different viewpoint. It's, it's, it's different when people come to us and ask us, you know, because we are on this big journey. I'm always seeing just, just that unknown and how that unknown impacts parents. And I know it's large because I know a lot of the, what the unknown does to parents is it really knocks us down. It, it puts some boundaries, um, puts some limits, uh, and, and they're, they're in place. And once those are there, those are a little harder to break down not being a sibling, I don't know what that journey is. And I, I know that that's what we really want to focus on this episode because there are siblings. And honestly, that is the biggest question that comes on any page that we see when someone gets a diagnosis and they find out that the, their child is going to have Down syndrome is what does this mean to my family? And I feel like most of the negative that gets put on parents from the outside is that same thing. What are you doing to your family? Now, once you get into it, however long it takes you in it, I know here after 11 years, we're like, I'm going to tell you what it does to our family. It makes it bolder and brighter and, and better, but right at the onset, that information. So I'm going to let Sophia really lead this 
because I think that it's so important for siblings. I know there were there have been a couple of TV shows on that have that sibling relationship, and whether it be the sibling has a brother uh, with CP or a brother with autism. I, I watch Sophia, watch those programs, and I see that relationship really helps her to see it, even though they are fiction and, and written, but seeing that relationship helps her. So I, I really want your voice to drive this, to give that information to siblings, to answer those questions that may be mulling about or just settled somewhere that you're afraid to ask. And if you want, we can just kind of, we can go, I know we have an hour, but we can go kind of like use the book as a guideline or like Sophia's questions here. Do you want to start off with your questions or would you rather start off with the stuff in the book? Um, I can, I can ask go ahead. a couple of my questions. All right. So I'm going to let, we're going to let her lead it. My first question is, did your sister have a equal education as you when growing up? And if so, how, how did that make you feel? Yeah, so the answer is a distinct no, right? So Kristen, my sister with Down syndrome, is 41 years old. And 40 years ago, the educational system was just starting to figure out what does inclusion mean. Inclusion, of course, we know is the best practice for people with Down syndrome when practiced properly, meaning people with Down syndrome could be co-educated side by side with their peers without Down syndrome, as long as the supports are in place, right? And even better, it means that if you are similar in age to your loved one with Down syndrome, they might be in the same school that you are, which means you might see them in the hallways, you might see them after school, they might be in your social network as well. I'm happy to say that now, several decades later, we've made a lot of progress in the country, but there's still a lot of barriers that are still facing people with Down syndrome and getting access to the education that they deserve. But then we start to look at post-secondary educational opportunities, Sophia. So when people decide to go to college or they decide to go to university or something after high school, and we increasingly have more opportunities for people with Down syndrome, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. So I am very grateful I had the educational opportunities I did throughout my lifetime. And I am very proud of my sister for working so hard throughout school, but it is unquestionable that I had distinctive advantages more than she did. Yeah, I experienced that too. I remember, you know, Liam has always been in a inclusive classroom, but I did notice the peers treating him differently, which I can't can't really got me frustrated, which I've been I wanted to know like how 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 did you feel when you got upset or saw your sister being treated differently? And are you and Liam in the same school system? Are you in the same building or different buildings? We were, but my my new school isn't in LAUSD. They were in elementary school together. So you use the word frustration. And Sue, this is a word I know we hear a lot from brothers and sisters. And first and foremost, we want to acknowledge it is okay and it is normal to feel frustrated either for your sibling with Down syndrome or because of your brother or sister with Down syndrome. Siblings frustrate each other oftentimes and that's part of the healthy growing up. But Sue, boy, don't we, don't we oftentimes kind of talk about and hear about uh, frustrated feelings? Absolutely, and sometimes the differences you see in the school system are really because of how the school system is supporting your sibling. So, 
you know, a lot of times uh, students with Down syndrome or other disabilities have an aide in the class. I don't know if your brother has that, but there's, you know, they're providing that additional adult in the classroom creates a bit of a barrier in a sense, um, depending on how the person is working with your sibling and how are they explaining Down syndrome to, to the, the other kids in the class, you know, and how, how do the other kids understand what Down syndrome is? So that's, an, you know, another angle on things is, you know, how aware are they of Down syndrome and what that really means? Um, I have a funny story for you, Sophia, uh, back when um, I, one of the little ones that I knew uh, as a baby, I went to kindergarten. They had asked me to come in and read a book to the class about Down syndrome. And at the end of the story, I asked the kids in the class, do you know anybody with Down syndrome? And um, they pointed to two other children before they pointed to the correct child with Down syndrome in the group, which I thought was so neat because they were doing a good job of making this child feel and seem like one of the group. And this was a little guy who had a lot of speech difficulties and a lot of problems, but because I've, I think of the efforts of the teachers in the classroom, they really made it seem like he was just another one of the kids. So that was kind of neat, but we don't run into that all the time. You know, sometimes we run into situations where the teachers are uncomfortable or they're not familiar with Down syndrome and that kind of skews how everything goes from there, right? Because the teacher sort of sets the tone for the classroom. That that was really our experience in, with Liam in the classroom. And when the teacher doesn't set a right tone, I know we've discussed this before, how detrimental that can be right. um, for the entire class, yeah. really, for the entire class, and then for your child thriving. Uh, and I think Sophia did witness a lot of that. She was she was there when Liam kind of got the brunt of being denied his supports. And I, I know that had an effect on her. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> I think it was hard because I noticed it and I experienced it. And I noticed my parents talking about it. And I talked to them a little bit about it. But I couldn't go to like one of my friends and talk to them about it because they would try their best to like comfort me or whatever but it wasn't something that they could relate to or say oh this is how I handled it because they haven't experienced something like this so can having a sibling with down syndrome can that feel lonely can that feel kind of like you're on the outside for me personally I feel a, li a little bit in some situations when it comes to talking about your sibling or things that they do with their sibling it can be like oh well I don't have that kind of relationship with my brother and I think a lot of people relate to it oh because they have down syndrome or the, the sibling has down syndrome it's it, and it may not be be because of that at all but it's kind of like oh I don't want to like send the a bad reputation about down syndrome is that you can't have a normal relationship with a sibling but you, you do get a different uh, side growing up. You know, Sophia, we hear that so often from brothers and sisters where they just feel like no one else has the experience that I'm going through. No one else could possibly understand. And Sue and I do hold these workshops where brothers and sisters come together, not with their siblings with Down syndrome and certainly not their parents. And then we have time together. And by the end of these half day or full day sessions, 
one of the best part is for brothers and sisters to realize, oh, you had that experience too, you're like that, and you realize you are not alone. And I think what's so important is for brothers and sisters to meet other siblings who have loved ones with Down syndrome, because you don't need to be their best friends, but just to know that it is a shared experience and you're not the only one that has those questions. Because we know there's so many support groups for parents and moms and dads, and they oftentimes say, it's just so nice to have that fellowship or to have that connection. And I think brothers and sisters need that as well. And Sue and I, again, are not able to travel as much, but in those areas of the country that don't have opportunities for brothers and sisters to get together, we've made it easy. So Sue and I have taken all of our knowledge from running brothers and sister groups, all the activities, all the fun games we've ever done, and we put it together on a website. And so any local group that wants to do something for brothers and sisters, we have ready to go exercises and the whole workshop available on our website. And Sue, maybe you want to say a little bit about what goes into our workshops. Sibling programs can be done in all kinds of ways. It can be a full day workshop. It can be an hour and a half for kids who are teenagers. We do a lot of our groups for kids like ages nine and up, but there's, we also, or I have run uh, groups with little ones as well. But there are three things we like to to concentrate on in the sibling programs that we run. One is the facts about Down syndrome, which a lot of that you got from the book, but you know, kind of going over it, answering some specific questions. It's fabulous that Brian's a doctor, so he can answer them, you know, exactly correctly, uh, but we do concentrate on facts. Another thing we concentrate is uh, on feelings, and Brian alluded to this earlier, and what we like to emphasize is any feeling you ever feel as a sibling is valid and it's okay. So when you have those days where you wish you had a different sibling, or you just wish you could change everything magically, that's normal. And it's normal to feel that way. Um, to feel embarrassed, it's normal to feel that way. To feel upset or protective or wanting to take care of them and shield them from the rest of the world, that's normal. And so we like to emphasize all of that in the group. And then the third thing we focus on is how you problem solve, you know, what are the big issues that you're having and how can other people help support you and provide you with other ideas and strategies um, in, in the, the uh, program as well. So those are three of the things we focus on. We find, you know, interested parents can run the group, social workers, special ed teachers, anybody like that can run the, the, uh, the group. So it can be very doable. But, and one of my favorite things about those workshops is when Somebody talks about an issue with a sibling, like listening to the same TV show over and over and over and over again. And five other kids in the room say, your sibling does that too. And it's like, oh my gosh, everybody, there's more people out there sharing your experience than you can ever imagine. And we made our webpage easy to remember. So it's siblingslearnaboutdownsyndrome.com. And again, it's all that we've learned from brothers and sisters when we've been on the road over the years. That's fantastic. One of the things that you said was sometimes you can feel embarrassed. And I think that when you feel embarrassed, that just it puts such a weight on you. Makes you feel guilty, right? Well, yeah, but you just feel, I mean, I felt like that in the grocery store. The, the, the funny thing is, is that if Sophia did a behavior when she was little, when Liam does it, you, you really get so self-conscious about it. And you, you know, you tapped on those big emotions that um, siblings can feel. So what, what do you say? You said that every, um, 
emotion is valid, right? But if someone feels embarrassed, one thing to know is feeling like you wish you had another sibling. I think every sibling feels that about everything. I think it don't, it doesn't matter who your sibling is. I think at one time or another, most people wish for that. And, yes. Right. But what do you, what do you say to um, kids who say that they get embarrassed and that weight that it brings with that emotion? That's a big emotion. If it's in the heat of the moment, Usually we just allow, we recommend to let the brothers and sisters to experience that moment and to tell moms and dads, unless there's a dangerous situation, which is rare, just to let them be. And it's usually best not to sit down and let's process the situation or try to correct the situation or try to tell them how to feel a different way in the moment. And we really find that afterwards. So, you know, the next day or two days later, it's really important to say, I noticed you were embarrassed yesterday in the mall. I just want to say, I could understand why you were embarrassed because it was embarrassing when your brother threw a temper tantrum in the middle of the mall, right? And I think naming that motion and saying that you understand and validating it is just so therapeutic because like Sue mentioned, the G word comes over and over again for siblings and that is guilty. The next day, two days later, three days later, we feel guilty for having a normal emotion that would be expected in a situation like that. And most parents, your first initial instinct is to fix it. Right. We've found that a lot of the kids, like especially if you're in the mall or out in a shopping area where there are a lot of people, sometimes the kids will pretend they're not with you. The sibling will decide, I'm just going to walk a little further away from mom and my brother, and I'm going to go look in the window over there and just pretend I'm not part of the action. And what we really say is that's totally fine. It's not the sibling's job in that moment to fix the situation, right? It's the parent's job to handle things. Sometimes you need some sibling assistance um, at times, and depending on the situation, but you know it's really okay and um, and I think what happens too, sometimes as siblings get older, they decide, well, it's the other person's problem if they don't understand, and I'm not going to worry about what other people think. But that comes with time and experience. And I would say to all the moms and dads who are listening right now that if you feel the need in a moment to correct or feel like you need to give a lesson, just take a moment to pause and say, how much of that reaction is you? versus the brothers and sisters. Because what doesn't work, we've heard from brothers and sisters over and over again is, come on, we do the walks, we love Down syndrome. Like, you're, how could you treat your sister that way? You should love your brother or sister with Down syndrome. Don't you understand they have Down syndrome? We like, we're the champion family for Down syndrome. Like, we need to be perfect, right? And it's the, where that's coming from is really a projection from mom and dad to make things perfect. And in doing so, it really robs the brother or sister, the sibling, of the ability for them to feel natural and authentic emotions. And all of that is important because as we grow up, we are little laboratories in our own home, testing emotions, testing relationships with our siblings, figuring out what works, what doesn't work. All of those little fights and the teasing and all of that is really important because it shapes us who we are. And when we become adults, we have these fine-tuned strategies. So if mom and dad are always there to correct and fix, we really deny brothers and sisters from being able to learn and make mistakes. So I should allow the wrestling. <laughs> Sorry, Sophia. As long as no one's getting hurt, you know, I say, you know, it's, it's very common across America. 
And it is. And I don't know personally other siblings. I do know my friends who have more than one child. And we all talk about our children the same way about how like how Sophia is just what an amazing human she is and the positive effect that Liam has had on this family as far as like just empathy and growth and things that I see in her that we don't like talk about. But I, I know she's getting these gifts that that just come on a daily basis. But then they're there has to be a pressure there to, and we want inclusion. We want Liam to be treated equally. We have to remember, we want Sophia to be treated equally, like have that same freedom that maybe her friends have to get mad and heated or yell at their siblings. And I have to remember that I I have to fight for inclusion for both of my children to, to live in a, a fair and equal environment. And that means maybe Liam gets yelled at sometimes by Sophia, because that's what, you know, his peers do. <laughs> that's right. And that's what happens in a normal relationship, you know, so that that whole experience and yeah, it's Sophia can't be sweet and wonderful and agreeable and allowing everything to just be all the time. It just isn't normal. You know, it just doesn't work that way. I think Lori, I loved what you said. Um, and that is that, you know, anybody who's been a sibling, at one point or another, really wishes they could have traded their brother or sister in or really had a moment of complete hatred, which is okay. And that's part of the experience. It totally is. And, you know, there's that pressure when you have a child with Down syndrome or another disability to present that positive attitude to the world. And it's all fine. And this is wonderful. And life is good. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And again, the sibling isn't the parent. The sibling you know, should be allowed, as you say, sort of that equal inclusion or that equal um, her own feelings and her own time and her own space and her own privacy and all those things. And you can answer this honestly. Do you feel that pressure? You know, because Stephen and I would say we don't put that pressure on. <laughs> but the dream- <laughs> We would think that, right? But even in this, like with whatever we do, do you feel that pressure? I mean, sometimes. I mean, I definitely feel like I can't yell at Liam because, well, how people see it is if I yell at a kid with Down syndrome, I'm really a jerk. (laughs) Like, I just become the ultimate bad guy. But if, you know, to neurotypical siblings did that they'd just be like oh that's a sibling fighting or you know make whatever they want of it but I definitely feel like oh if I'm gonna get mad at my brother I better do it in my own space at my own time because you know if someone's over and they just hear me like screaming at a 11 year old kid with down syndrome they're gonna be like why is that happening so yeah I feel that a little definitely Sophia, it's so rich for you to share that because Sue and I oftentimes see this inherent belief that we need to overcompensate or perhaps be above and beyond perfect, which would be expected for just any typical kid your age. And sometimes this comes from parents unknowingly, and they'll say, oh, my other daughter, my other son, they're so amazing. They're such a great advocate. They go to all things Down syndrome. And in doing so, highlighting good qualities, they're raising them up. So internally they feel, oh my goodness, I can never, I have to be like this perfect model saint, both during and outside the day, which is not possible for anyone. But then also internally, even when we don't get those signals from the outside world, we experience what you say. And at at all times, we have to be on our best behavior. We can't even get upset at the restaurant when our brother or sister does something that's really annoying, right? 
And so it's important to be in tune with that because if we continue to self-impose or accept this concept of needing to be perfect or overcompensating for a sibling, it could lead to some long-term challenges for both the relationship and both for the person with Down syndrome. So it is important to be able to be allowed to make mistakes, be allowed to have errors, and be allowed to be not perfect. So yelling at your brother in the privacy of your home is really the best way to go, right? <laughs> when you get upset, like you say, not out in public, but because that would make you feel too badly about it, right? Unless the moment is right and you can't help it, so. <laughs> but that would be the same for any siblings. Yes. And, and I think that is always my goal is to take away that this is how we feel because of the Down syndrome. Because I think that's a pressure that that happens too, is that Sophia feels that she feels that pressure that definitely comes in a different way. Like we like it's there. But to know that sometimes that occurs between other siblings that are just neurotypical and maybe that lightens the load a little bit. Maybe that takes away some of it that, you know, it's not just because your brother has Down syndrome. Maybe that would take away some of the pressure of, of feeling that responsibility, right? Because I always tell it, because I notice she acts like a parent sometimes and I'll say, it's not your, I'm the mom. It's not your responsibility. You get to be the kid. And I don't think that that matters a hell of beans, me saying that, because she's like, mm, yeah, right, I got this. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, because I see the effect, you know, that that pressure can have. And you you do mention advocacy, which I think is is another thing that most siblings, because we've had a, a few siblings that we've talked to, do, Brian, become advocates, right? It's not your responsibility to become an advocate. I want to, I want other, like, if that's just not your jam, as a sibling, it's okay to not feel like that that's your job. I imagine that would be a lot of pressure to feel like, because my sibling has Down syndrome, this is now my responsibility to do this, this, and this. So I always say that Brian is the poster child for sibling experiences with <laughs> When you have a brother or sister with Down syndrome, look how you turn out, right? This amazing guy has dedicated his life to Down syndrome. But yes, that's not everybody's thing. You're absolutely right, Lori. Uh, we do find, I, and we've kind of had research sort of um, confirm this, Brian, that the majority of people who have a sibling with Down syndrome tend to be more sensitive, more caring, I, I guess better rounded people in some respects, you know, they feel that they've learned those life lessons to be more patient, to be more understanding, um, to be able to break things down, to help others understand or learn something. These are all qualities that seem to come from having the sibling experience. And that's a beautiful thing. You use the word gifts before Lori, and that's the, you know, the sibling really gets some gifts out of the experience of growing up with someone with Down syndrome. Again, it's not all roses by any means, but boy, it, are the life lessons impactful and wonderful, really. And I would add, even for those brothers and sisters that don't make Down syndrome the centerpiece of their professional life, it's there and it infused in such wonderful ways. And I remember, oh, this is many, many years ago when I was doing an adult sibling workshop with other brothers and sisters who had uh, siblings with Down syndrome. And we were just going around saying, what does everyone do for their profession? And one was 
you know, a special education teacher and one was in the clinic and a physician. And then I remember there was one participant, an adult uh, woman who said, I am a hairdresser distinctively because of my sister with Down syndrome. And I didn't quite get the connection. So I said, what about your sister inspired you to be a hairdresser? And she said, every day my sister makes people feel beautiful. And this is how I could do the same, right? And so I am convinced that whatever job you kind of go into, you kind of have either your brother or sister in mind or the lessons learned from your brothers and sisters. So advocacy is there on both small and big levels. Mm -hmm. A number of years ago, I had a group of college students come talk, three girls and a guy. And of course, the girls were all going to be special educators, speech therapists, physical therapists. But the guy said, you know, I'm going to be a career in business. I'm going to be on Wall Street. I want to make a ton of money. And then he realized that he had started a charity on campus to help the homeless um, in the area that he, uh, the college was located. And there was like a light bulb moment for him that even though I'm not going to make Down syndrome my life, the sensitivity and caring and awareness of the needs of others is strongly in me, you know, so it was really a, you know, quite a neat experience for him to process that. I would say that, you know, Sue and I did some research where we surveyed over 800 brothers and sisters from around the country, and we were able to publish their thoughts in the research literature. And 93% of siblings say when they grow up, they want to make sure they're involved in their brothers and sisters' lives. That's amazing, 93%. But 7% choose not to, and that's okay too. It's just important for the family to know which camp are you in. And this just comes down to honest and open communication within the family. And what we find is what siblings feel this year might not be their same answer tomorrow or next year because environments and circumstances change. So if there's one take home, I hope families just continue to take from this is just be open and honest, reassessing the family dynamics and the situation year after year. And if advocacy isn't the route you're going to take, the, gift, the gifts are going to be there. You don't have to feel just like just with anybody's life. You're, you're creating your life. Your life is being created. The relationships were affecting each other. And Sophia has a profound effect on Liam. And it's fun sometimes when we see that effect, when we see, you know, uh, him doing exactly what she's doing. And I'll say, you know where he gets that from. Most of the time, it's a good thing. <laughs> but I'll say, do you see where he gets that from? Look at your effect. Because I, I think that people talk a lot about Liam's effect on Sophia, but we don't talk about Sophia's effect on Liam. I, I don't know how that feels, but I would imagine if you have the pressure to be this, and but then not any of, you don't have that value. It's almost like the value is coming from something else. I would, I don't, I don't know how that would feel, you know. Can Brian or Sophia, you want to, anybody have a feeling like that? It's just a light bulb thing as we're talking that I thought about. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, well, me personally, my personality is I'm, I have a little bit of perfectionist in me. And so, if, okay, it, more than a little, but <laughs> um, <laughs> it can be um, very cool to see something that I'm doing relay off to Liam but sometimes it's like oh now I really have to watch what I'm doing because it could not backfire but have him have Liam do something that I don't want him to learn and it was just you know me being me or upset or whatever so even 
you know, mom, you said earlier, I always want to be the parent in the situation is, well, I, I want to perfect that situation as much as I can. So I, I definitely feel like, oh, well, if Liam can't perfect it, then that's my turn to perfect it. And it's not, I'm not going to be like, I'm the parent now. It's just like something in me that's like, okay, I have to make this better for whatever reason. It comes from such a place of love, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, you, you love your, your brother so much that you want to make sure that he's given all the opportunities to succeed and he considers you a role model in many ways. So not only are you a sibling, but you're a role model. For sure. And siblings really are the best teachers. The kids with Down syndrome definitely like to copy what their brothers and sisters are doing. And that's good and bad, you know, and there's, there's that pressure my daughter has three kids and none have disability, but the oldest child, she'll say, you know, you've got to be a role model for the little one. You know, you've got to watch what you're, and it's sort of, I see that and I think, oh my gosh. So again, all siblings are kind of put in that position, whether you have a sibling with Down syndrome or not. But Sophia, you know, I think you really said it best when you said you, you want to perfect the situation. You want to do whatever you can to try to help that. I don't know that my older oldest granddaughter feels that way. And, you know, again, I think that's where the Down syndrome comes in as the mediating factor in that. But here is also a message for all of us siblings to parents out there. Sometimes we need your help to tell us when we start becoming a third parent rather than a brother and sister. So to give you uh, an example from my own life, when my sister Kristen, this is uh, decades ago, first got her first job. So she was done with high school. She got a job and it was in the community that we lived in. And my parents had arranged with her for a taxi service to take her there and pick her up. I happened to be home that week when she was first gonna start because I was between college and I was between my first internship. And I told my parents, you know what? I'm home, so why don't I just in my car go to the place and just hover behind the bushes in the car and make sure the taxi picks her up and follow her home just to make sure it's okay. And my parents are like, oh, that's so great. We're so great to have you. You're such a great advocate. You love your sister so much, right? So I did that for three days until my sister realized I was following her the whole time. And what did that do? It undercut her independence. When her brother should have been home waiting to celebrate the fact that she had just did the first couple days of her job, instead I had become that hovering helicoptering parent instead, and I had tricked my parents into thinking that I was being a good advocate. So these sometimes we just overdo it, and we need parents to remind us we still need to be brothers and sisters at the end of the day. Well, as a hovering parent, uh, what you did wrong, Brian, is you got caught. <laughs> I didn't hide well enough. <laughs> you can still follow. And then when she comes home, you go, hey, you're home. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Just to normalize that situation a little bit, I've had multiple times where maybe a year after I walked to the store for the first time by myself, dad came up to me and was like, you know, I was following you the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. He's a, he's a better hider than I am. I'll have to get tips from Stephen for next time. Well, because Sophia could walk to the store by herself, then she was like, I can walk to the store by myself. I can definitely go do this. And that's when he had to go, no, I was behind you. Like, <laughs> So it wasn't just to kind of burst a bubble or anything. It was just to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, we're going to take it one step at a time. I know we're short on time, but there were two things that I know that Sophia wanted to talk about because there were two things that really um, affect her. I know they affect me as well, but 
I know it's handled differently if you're a sibling. It's just different. So which one do you want to ask first? Okay. The R word. Uh, it's, yeah, I don't like the word at all. And uh, when I hear it, I get very offended. And um, I, I do know that there is a correct way of using it and a not correct way. So I was interested because in your book, you use the term mental retardation. And I was wondering if that was a medical term or something when you were writing the book that hadn't, is, is it still allowed to be, to be used? I'm glad you bring it up because the R word stings, doesn't it? And it is usually the first time that brothers and sisters step up and become advocates. And I hope you saw that in the book, we have a whole section on how do you respond to the R word, right? And so we give a little bit of a history where the word comes from so that brothers and sisters have that knowledge. It used to be a medical terminology, but now it's an outdated one and one that should no longer be used under any circumstances. And brothers and sisters, when they hear it, oftentimes they are hearing it used pejoratively by people who are using the word to put our brothers and sisters down. And so then becomes a question of how do you respond to that? And one thing Sue and I always say is you don't always have to respond to every time someone uses the R word. If you feel comfortable, good for you and way to go. But sometimes if your teacher uses it or your, you know, the person you have a crush on at school uses it or in some other context and you don't feel like stepping up, just know that that's okay. You don't have to step up every time. But Sue and I oftentimes say the best response is to share your feelings. So rather than going into a long lecture and lecturing the person where the artwork comes from, just telling the person why that hurts, why that word is really using Liam and using Kristen and using so many others pejoratively. And most people don't want to hurt other people. And then they'll go home thinking about whether or not they'll use that word again. Sometimes your friends around you as well kind of support that uh, and kind of help others understand that that's not an appropriate term. But I think you're also asking, is the term mental retardation the appropriate description for a cognitive disability at this point in time, right? So I think is the term, Brian, uh, intellectual disability? Exactly. People with Down syndrome have an intellectual disability. You had mentioned most people don't want to hurt your feelings. Every so often we run into that person who stands by what they're saying. Advice on how you have handled that. Like when you say, hey, you know, we don't use that word. It's really not a, a word that's outdated. It is a damaging and hurtful word. And, you know, it's my brother has Down syndrome. You say that and then they go, oh, people are so sensitive or uh, I'm still going to use it. It's a medical term or they just fight tooth and nail. What would you advise she does in that situation? I would say the same thing. We can't bear the responsibility of changing everyone that we meet. But if we give the person the privilege of being able to understand how we felt in that moment, how it made us hurt, how it made us feel that our loved ones with Down syndrome were being disparaged, we give that person a gift. And they might not be able to unpackage it in that moment of time, but when they use it again and the next sibling says the, next, the same thing and the third sibling says the same thing, then maybe they'll start to change their hearts and minds. Another thing that you might want to say, too, is, you know, you're not the only one who feels that way about that word. 
it's not just you, that there are others in uh, the community that you've read about, that you've heard about, who find that word to be a difficult word. So that will also let them know that they, maybe they bear a little more responsibility, not to you. Maybe they don't care about you as much because um, they feel too cool for school, right? So, but they might, they might think about it. And, and I can pretty much guarantee they're going to go to bed thinking about that. And again, as Brian says, whether they change now or five years from now, we don't know, but you can't be responsible for that, but they're going to hear you. They're going to hear you. I remember way back when, when I was in medical school, I had two roommates and one of my roommates who was a really nice person just had that word as part of his vocabulary. And I would share with him how it made me feel and used it again, shared with him how it made me feel and took a while, right? So what was nice about it is we remained roommates for several years and a couple years later, uh, the person he was dating was over sharing dinner with us and she used the R word. And I didn't consider it my place at that time because she wasn't dating me and it was kind of a, a situation where it was kind of new. And so I just kind of chose, I'm not gonna be the advocate in this particular moment. But my roommate came to me um, the next day and said, Brian, I just want to let you know, I told her how that word now makes me feel, oh. right? And so it took a while, but we plant a seed and those seeds grow in other people. And so there's this chain reaction that sometimes happens. But Brian, can you explain how you felt when it would just happen over and over again? Yeah, it feels different in different circumstances, right? So when you know the person in that particular um, instance, I knew the person, I knew my roommate, I knew he was a good person and that it was an ingrained word that was just part of the vocabulary that rolled off his tongue and wasn't doing it deliberately to hurt me. But I knew that he also wanted to, he heard how it made me feel, get rid of it. So he needed the reminders, right? And so Yes, maybe it was frustrating that he didn't change it right away and it took some time, but in many ways, I was grateful that he was willing to hear and willing to work on it. This is indifference to, you know, I had a boss once in a hospital who pulled me aside and after seeing me do an interview on CNN, where I use the word intellectual disabilities and describe the benefits and the awesomeness of people with Down syndrome, pulled me aside and said, Brian, you just need to tell the parents that their kids are retarded. That's what you need to do. They need to hear it, right? And I shared with him how that word made me feel and why we don't use those words. Um, and that was a different emotion, right? Because now there's a power dynamic. There's a difference, right? This is someone who has, you know, authority over me within a hospital system um, where I'm no longer at. But that's a different emotion. So the same word could, I think, my way of giving this issue different emotions based on who it's coming from in the context in which it's said. And my responses are, are slightly different. I think the problem with me right now is I don't really have that, like, if someone says anything offensive to Liam, I don't really care what their authority is. I, I'm working on telling them in a calm way. Usually I just get really upset at them. So I'm working on trying to educate them more than screaming at them. And that segues into your other question that you had. About anger. How, how do you deal with anger? anger at someone else for, you know, insulting my brother or being mean to him or. So I think one of the ways you can do that is to realize they don't have the benefit of the learning experience that you've had. 
and they don't get it. They're not walking in your shoes. So they, they haven't had the life experiences that you have in order to understand it. So maybe kind of looking at it like that and being able to sit back and say, well, they're still learning about these things where you really have it mastered. And I, I do think in many ways, uh, people who are siblings of someone with a disability have an advantage over others and have that greater sensitivity. So I think sitting back and realizing they still have work to do on this issue and trying to educate them through facts is definitely the best way, which isn't to say you can't yell and scream at them sometimes when it really bothers you. But if you can kind of in your head say, they just don't get it yet. They just haven't learned what I've already learned. And that's like the optimum, you know, to have that like breath and then say, you know, they just, they're just not coming from where I'm coming from. But I, what I witness sometimes is in the, in the heat of the moment, you know, she can see it from a teacher. She can hear it, you know, walking through when we're doing distance learning, someone um, making a comment or talking in a certain way uh, on the playground. Recently, we were out and there was a, a bully and he singled Liam out and she just happened to join in right when this bully came in. And uh, right in the moment, what I witness is the culmination of all of, of all of everything, maybe not expressed, maybe, um, you know, the challenges that she overcomes or that pressure she puts on herself or at, at 13, it's hard to say, I'm going to breathe. <laughs> Even that's, that's always what I tell her is to breathe. Right, right. And she just, it just takes a moment to get there because there's so much emotion. It's like word, word vomit, just like everything that's coming to your mind. It's just, I'm saying it to you when you most probably and she shouldn't just, say it to that right, person. But, yeah. But it's, uh, but it, I, I witness that it's just like, I just want him to know. And I, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think that at 13, that there's so much going on there that maybe you have some, how did you deal with it? Did you ever have those times where you just blew your top? You know, and it still happens. And, and it sometimes has nothing to do with Down syndrome. You know, when we're angry in the moment, we all respond different ways. And I would say in a family like yours, where it's clear that open communication is just so valued, that you could always have a, let's think about this after the fact. So Sophia, you could do it on your own, where the next day or the following day, you look back on that and you say, how do I think I did? And would I do anything differently next time, right? And if you want, you could also choose to invite mom or dad to be part of that kind of reflection experience. And it might be, yeah, I really love the way I did this. And maybe next time I would do this. So we treat all of those moments as an opportunity. So when the next time comes and we're angry again, we kind of have those reflections be a part of us. So that maybe it comes out a little bit differently next time. And it's, it's just a, a great practice, I think, for all of us, particularly for siblings. I think the way you describe that situation with the bully, you know, that sounds like one of those moments, just like Brian's experience with his, his roommate made him view the situation differently. It wasn't like the roommate was outwardly trying to be nasty, whereas this kid on the playground was, you know, where was that coming from for him? You know, how do you maybe yelling was the right thing to do in that moment in time or saying, I guess you really don't know a whole lot about Down syndrome, do you? That's another way you could play it and sort of kind of turn it around like, 
you know, who's the person who doesn't know, or decide whether you provide different information um, at that moment in time. But every situation is going to be different. And there's no 100% right way to deal with it. Because like you say, some people will say, well, I don't really care what he has. This is what I think, you know, and you're going to get that attitude. And other people who might kind of step back and run away or feel, whoa, okay, I didn't realize that. So you can't script it, right? But I like Brian's idea of reviewing it after the fact to kind of identify next steps, right? As you can see, siblings, there's so much. That's why we had to write a whole book, right? Because it's almost impossible to pack into an hour. But Sophia, we would always love to come back and, and chat some more. I think it's a topic that is evergreen and there's so many different dimensions to this. Do you have any other resources that you would give to siblings who have a sibling with Down syndrome? Great question. In addition to our, our book, Sophia, Sue and I also had an attempt at YouTube. So we have a YouTube channel where we try to answer the most common questions about brothers and sisters. And that link will be in the show notes, I'm sure. And then we also have created the website, Siblings Learn About Down Syndrome, which is our workshop on a website. So for any siblings like yourself, who might want to run a brothers and sisters workshop one day, all the notes are there. I'm so happy that you could come on because I know that there's questions that I just can't answer for Sophia because I think it's a, it's a unique point of view with very unique challenges. And um, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate your book. I wish I would have had, I would have had this book when Liam was born because it answers the questions. And not only does it answer the questions, but like you were saying about having a script or something to say, you know, initially we would get a lot of questions and there's so much going on as a new parent. It alleviates that you could send, you can send your parents the book, you can send your in-laws the book, you can send your aunts and uncles and cousins the book and let them read it. And then they will have an understanding. So it's not just for siblings. Your siblings will definitely learn and grow from it, but you can utilize this resource to, to give to people who ask questions that sometimes those questions are so heavy. Sometimes we feel like, I know that Stephen and I, we would be like, Google it. Because <laughs> we just, it was, it was pressure. It was one more thing on our day, you know, to try to educate everyone. But you did it. You did it right here with your fast and your seatbelts. I really appreciate those comments because we've said that to parents in workshops and, and that's how we feel about it. It's not just for... Uh, for the kids it's for parents so they can answer the kids questions or the relatives questions too so definitely I appreciate your comments on that thank you so much for coming and answering our questions yeah thank you so much and we always love having you on Brian and Susan we got to have you on again all right awesome love it great sounds good all right we'll talk again soon thank you both bye-bye Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Amazon.